Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Agriculture, where each week I will meet with food industry professionals to unearth the truth about our food system for you to feel confident navigating the grocery store. My name is Bonnie Witt and I am your host. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, which means it's time for a nice steak dinner. Speaking of steak, this week we will be talking about the beef industry. Well, the first part anyways. This week we will be talking about the first part of the beef industry where we will cover a little bit about raising cattle, how the industry works, and welfare of cattle. We will wrap up our talk of the beef industry in next week's episode when we talk about finishing, processing, and beef products. The beef industry in the U.S. is currently worth almost $62 billion. This is about a $35 billion increase since just 2002. However, with that, the fresh beef retail cut price has also increased over the years by a little over $4 per pound. As of January 1st, 2024, there are over 87 million cattle in the United States. Now, let's dive right into unearthing agriculture. studio we have Dr. Ron Lemonager. Ron graduated with his bachelor's degree from the University of Illinois and received his master's and PhD from Oklahoma State University. He currently works at Purdue University where he works in extension for ruminant nutrition and management for beef. Ron also teaches the beef management class for animal science students here at Purdue University. Welcome Ron. Well it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Anytime. So a little icebreaker before we get started real quick. Do you follow Purdue basketball at all? Absolutely. If you had to choose, who is your favorite player on the team? Gosh, that's a good question. I like the way they play together. And uh, I suppose it's Edie. I think he gets pushed around quite a bit and probably ought to have more foul shots than what he gets. But uh, I like them all. Yeah, I have to say I like them all as a team, too. I love all of them, but I don't know. I think my favorite right now would have to be Lance Jones. I really like the dynamic that he brings to the team, and he always seems to be having a good time as well. Absolutely. He's full of energy. Yeah. As we dive right in real quick, can you explain a little bit of cattle terminology for us and for the listeners? What is a heifer? Well, a heifer would be a, a female offspring, okay, from a cow. Uh, and that heifer would stay in that classification until she calves. And at that point, and typically that's about two years of age. Uh, so when she's a two-year-old, after she calves, she becomes a cow. Now, I, I have to admit that in the industry, we use some jargon that sometimes doesn't quite fit that because a lot of times whenever I'm talking to producers or students, you know, we use the term first calf heifer and we use that because she's not mature yet. All right. She won't mature until she's about four, four and a half, five years of age. Okay. Where she reaches kind of her end of her skeletal growth uh, phase. And so we talk about first calf heifers and second calf heifers, but technically they would be classified as cows after they calve. What is a steer? Okay, a steer would be uh, a calf, typically, uh, that would be uh, castrated, all right? So take out the testicles, okay? And that's done for a variety of reasons. One of them is that bulls sometimes can get a bad disposition, okay? And by removing the testicles and the testosterone that's associated with that, you reduce the aggressiveness and increase the docility of those cattle. The other part of it is, and, and it, uh, also the aggressiveness from the standpoint of both the human side, okay, of the animal handling side, but also against other animals, okay, that might be in the group. The second one, that reason is that um, steers tend to be more tender, okay, and they tend to be able to put down um, more marbling, uh, and that's what the American consumer is kind of 
indicated uh, that they want is the higher quality grades, okay, of choice and certified Angus beef, okay, which would be upper two-thirds choice or even prime. Thank you. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how the cattle industry is structured today? Well, you know, if we could kind of think of a pyramid, uh, at the top of the pyramid would be um, seed stock producers, okay? Those could be either purebred or hybrid kind of cattle, okay? And by hybrid, I'm talking about cattle that are crossbreds, but in a very specific sort of way, okay? So a specific combination. Uh, and these, uh, those seed stock producers provide placement females and bulls for the typical commercial cow-calf producer. So you got the seed stock at the kind of the top of the pyramid, okay? And then we increase numbers as we go in terms of number of operations, number of cows uh, into the commercial side of the industry. And a lot of times those cattle are crossbreds, all right? So you might be buying bulls from one seed stock operation this year. Next year, you might buy from another seed stock operation because of different breeds. And so you're, you're creating a crossbred animal. Then the next phase of the, of the industry is, is what we call the stalker backgrounder phase. And we use those two terms kind of simultaneously and concurrently. Uh, but probably more realistically, the stalker phase would be cattle that would be grown, okay, after they're weaned. And we typically wean in calves in that seven-month kind of a time frame. Uh, so we we take that seven-month-old calf and put it on grass, typically. So that would be a stalker program. And what we're trying to do there is we're trying to increase skeletal growth and add muscle without adding a lot of fat at that point. And then after, in the backgrounder, could be a high forage diet as well, okay? But typically might be more in a dry lot or a semi-dry lot kind of a condition, but still fed forages and with the same endpoint of growth. All right. And then those cattle would move on at somewhere around 750 to 850 pounds uh, into the feedlot phase. And that's where we would finish them. And then the cattle would be harvested at somewhere 13 to 18 months, typically of age. And that's what most consumers would find in the grocery stores and in the restaurants that they might go to. And then has this pyramid type setup, has that changed over the years or is this something that has been common for hundreds of years? Well, it's, it's been pretty common. I mean, the, the same categories exist. What, what's probably changed the most is increasing the number of animals per operation. Okay, and, and most of these operations are still family owned and operated. We are not a vertically integrated industry. Okay, so the cow calf operation oftentimes is different than the stocker backgrounder phase, which is different than the feedlot phase, but probably increasing in the size of the operation. And it's because of low margins, okay, on a per head basis. And so it takes the numbers to be able to generate enough to earn a living. Just to make sure that I'm kind of understanding this a little correctly then. So a family um, that raises cattle, then they will work in one aspect of this industry and then sell them to the next step, or do they raise them from start to finish in each of these stages? Well, it can go both ways. Uh, most, I would say a high percentage of the of the industry would be segmented. All right. So, but, you know, when we get here in, in the Eastern Corn Belt, where we've got smaller family operations, you know, a lot of times uh, the cow-calf producer would 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 be probably start at the commercial level. All right. So it'd be a commercial cow calf operation. They would grow the cattle and they might finish the cattle and then actually market them as freezer beef. 
There are operations that have multiple phases of the industry, but a lot of them are ended from each other. So it really just depends. And then, so just like we talked last week in the pork industry, there are also multiple breeds of cattle as well. What are the most common breeds of beef cattle in a production operation? Well, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've got several different classes of cattle. We've got what we call the boss Taurus breeds. So those would be the t- typical beef breeds that we would see in the, in the northern part of the country. So those would be uh, English breeds. Okay, or breeds that came from Great Britain. So that would be the Angus, the Hereford, and the Shorthorn. And then we imported uh, in the late 60s. Uh, we started importing uh, cattle out of continental Europe. Okay, so we called those the continental breeds. And the really common ones there are, would be the, the Simmental, the Gelvy, the Limousine, the Charolais, uh, the Ménageau. Uh, and they come from different countries, obviously, in continental Europe. The continental breeds are a little larger. And they're a little bit leaner breeds, where the English breeds, the Angus, the Hereford, and the Shorthorn, tend to be a little bit more moderate in their frame size. Uh, and they probably have a little bit more fleshing ability. So what we see in, in, in a lot of the commercial cow-calf operations would be a combination of those. And a real popular crossbred here in the Eastern Corn Belt would be an Angus Simmental cross. Now, we see other breeds, obviously, influenced in, in that. But that would be a pretty common crossbred cow. Is there a reason for using these particular breeds versus a breed that we might see commonly used for a pet, like the Highland cattle or your Longhorns? Okay, so, you know, the the Highlands, the Belted Galloways, um, the Dexters, uh, the South Devons tend to be smaller frame cattle, and they they kind of work in a grass-fed program. All right, if if your end target instead of going through a feedlot would be into a grass-fed market, uh, and it, the reason for that is because they're a little earlier maturing. All right, and so they don't have quite as much product in them. Okay, and on a carcass basis, but but they kind of fit. When you get into the Highlands and the Longhorns, um, those are kind of novelty breeds. All right, it's it's kind of front pasture. You know. Um, look what I've got, okay? Because they they don't really fit, okay, the traditional market channels. And so uh, those cattle don't give us quite enough product and don't quite fit that carcass specs, okay, of weight and quality grade yield grade. So now that we've covered a little bit about cattle breeds, why don't we move into a little bit more about the life cycle of a cow from birth to death? Most of our calves, okay, so these are born to a, to a cow, all right? And um, those calves would nurse their mom for about seven months, uh, and at which time, we, and there's a little bit of variation around that. There's reasons why we might wean earlier than that, wean later than that, and it's based on economics and feed availability and a lot of things. But roughly seven months of age, and those calves on the average probably would weigh about 500 pounds. And at, at that point, um, well, one of the things that we recommend to our beef producers is that that they precondition these calves. And what that means is that for the next 45 days after weaning, we make sure that we've got all the vaccinations in them. We make sure that the calves, the bull calves are castrated and healed. Uh, if they have any horns that we have to deal with, you know, those are dealt with in the, in the healing process. The heifers, we make sure that they're not pregnant, okay, going in into the backgrounder 
or the feedlot phase. A lot of times we'll grow those cattle, okay, in that background or stocker background phase, okay, until they're somewhere in a year of age, uh, weighing 750 to 850 pounds. And that process, the, that background or stocker phase could be from two to six months, typically, okay, depending on when the calf was born, whether it was a spring-born calf or a fall-born calf. And, and the, the background stocker phase really gives us, as an industry, an opportunity to make sure that we've got cattle coming through the processing plants 12 months out of the year, all right? Because we have probably 75% of the calves are born in the spring in this country and about 25 roughly in the fall. And then you got whatever's left kind of in the middle of the summer. And so to keep those spring-born calves, okay, coming through the system, if we grow them for a little while instead of immediately finishing them, kind of spreads those cattle out from a harvest date standpoint, that works to our advantage. So the, the stocker phase will last maybe two to six months. And then um, when they hit the feedlot, that would be a four to six month kind of a time frame. If those calves happen to go into uh, a grass-fed program, uh, that finishing phase moves from four to six months up to six to 12 months. All right. So uh, the grass-fed cattle take longer to, to get to harvest. Cows, you know, a cow can stay pretty productive until she's 10. Um, we don't always, not all the cows will make it that long, okay? We'll, we'll see some structural problems that will develop or, you know, the cow fails to conceive and to have a calf. And so those cows might get culled. Uh, bulls uh, can last five or more years, all right? The, the reason for getting rid of a bull in a cow-calf operation is because he's got daughters coming back, all right, in the herd. After, after using several seasons and the heifers, okay, are now sired by him. And so we try to minimize that inbreeding coefficient is what we call it. In other words, breeding sired and offspring, right? So that's kind of a little bit of a snapshot of how this works. So based off of what you're saying there, I kind of want to point out that from those timelines, if someone is wanting to get into the cattle industry, they're not going to get a return on their investment right away like you might in, say, poultry or pork industry. You'll be waiting a little bit. Our life cycle is long. Okay, so let me just give you an example. All right, if we kept a replacement heifer, so this seven-month-old heifer calf, 2024, we'd breed her in 25, we'd calve her in 26, we'd wean her calf, her first calf in 26, and then if it happened to be a steer offspring, that steer offspring wouldn't be harvested until 27. So, yeah, we've got a long production cycle. You mentioned that whenever a cow might not conceive that it may get cold. Why do we do this instead of trying to sell it as a pet to somebody else to take on? Okay, and that's a good question. Um, most of these cows are not quite that gentle to be, you know, a household pet that you want to bring into the house, okay, or put in the backyard. You know, these are still big animals. Uh, they require, I mean, a significant amount of feed, all right? So, you know, let's, let's just take... Uh, a uh, 1,200-pound cow, as an example. Okay, every day of her life, she's going to consume or waste about 3% of her body weight. 1,200-pound cow times 0.03, all right, is, you know, 36 pounds of dry feed that she's going to either consume or there's going to be wastage because there's storage waste, all right, or some disappearance off of inventory. And then, you know, I mean, it's like a little kid, right? You know, when you're trying to stuff things in your mouth, things fall out, and okay, and end up on the, on the floor or on your lap or whatever. So a good 
rule of thumb is about 3%. So if they're eating 36 pounds a day, okay, and and it, let's let's put it in terms of grass, right? So kind of your lawn or out here in a pasture, well, that pasture is going to be about 80% water, all right? So that's 20% dry matter. So uh, 36 divided by 0.2 is, I don't know, way over 100 pounds, right, of wet product that this cow is going to eat. So that's not real conducive to kind of the backyard, um, in the house, in the garage kind of a, of a beast. However, I will add that there, there are some additional novelty breeds that I didn't mention before, but there are some miniature cattle, right? So these are really little guys, and we see those breeds sometimes being used kind of for pets, probably not in the house, right? But, but kind of the backyard pet obviously requires a lot less feed. And cattle can be very gentle, all right, but they're not all pettable, right? And, and it's, so it's part of its genetics, part of it is learned behavior and how they were handled during their lifetime. Um, and so I think you will probably get into that just a little bit later in this, in this podcast. But, you know, if I've got miniature cattle, okay, they don't fit the traditional markets that we, we are shooting for, okay, with carcasses of, you know, 700 to 900 pounds. Uh, they're going to be significantly lighter and they would be a discount in the traditional market. Speaking of what cattle eat every day, what does a cow's diet look like? What is it that they are eating? Well, and I've, I've made this calculation for a, for a publication that we put together. But if you think about the life cycle, so what does mom eat from the day she conceives until her offspring are harvested? All right. And it works out to be uh, about 85% grain and grain byproducts, about 10% roughage. Okay, or forage, and about five percent supplement and vitamins and minerals. And it should mention that that's the feedlot phase. All right, on a life cycle phase, over ninety-one percent of what that life cycle food consumption is is non-edible human product. All right, so it's grass, it's corn silage, uh, it's byproducts like uh, the byproduct from the ethanol industry, which we call distillers grains, or maybe it's the byproduct from the production of fructose sugar, okay? So that would be a corn gluten feed. Uh, we've got wheat mids. Uh, we've got a, a citrus pulp. Uh, depending on where you're at in the country, we use a lot of the product that would otherwise have to go into the landfill because pigs can't use it, chickens can't use it, humans can't use it okay? because it's a high fiber type feed. And we just don't have the enzymes to be able to break down some of those more complex carbohydrates where the rumen, uh, which is a, basically a pre-gastric okay, or before the stomach fermentation pouch. And we've got microbes, okay? So the, there's bacteria uh, that are uniquely designed to break down fiber. And and so there is a, they have a symbiotic relationship with the animal. And um, it allows those animals then to be able to use the byproducts that those bacteria produce. And there's fungi and there's yeast and there's, there's protozoa all in this rumen. Um, they don't get outside the room and they stay in the GI tract, but they help digest the products. And, and then the animal then uses, you know, the energy and the protein and the amino acids and the vitamins and minerals that are generated from both the feed and from the microbes themselves. So uh, about 91% of what an animal eats life cycle is unusable by humans. 
And uh, so that's kind of a misnomer that we sometimes hear is that, you know, we're stuffing these cattle full of grain. Um, that's not the case. Now, in the feedlot phase, yep, it could be 85% either grain or grain byproduct, 10% roughage, and about 5% supplements, which would be the vitamins and the minerals and that kind of thing. Uh, so in the finishing phase, in a feedlot, we typically feed more grain there. That's where, that's where they get fed for maybe uh, four to six months. And then you mentioned real quick um, about the rumen. Can you explain what that is and is it different than what we as humans have? The ruminant digestion system it has basically four parts, okay? Some people say we get cattle and, and ruminants, okay? So deer would be one, elk, um, you know, there's sheep, goats, all are ruminants, all right? So some people will say they've got four stomachs. That's not correct. They have four compartments to their GI tract, all right? So the rumen is, is a big structure prior to the last structure, which is the abomasum. And the abomasum would be basically our stomach, okay, as humans. And so there's, there's the rumen, all right, which is the biggest chamber. And then there's um, the reticulum, all right? And so if you look at it, if you looked at the inside of it, it looks like a honeycomb. And then there's the omasum, and it basically is, is a series of leaves. And so that serves as a filter, all right, for things going from the rumen side into the abomasum or the true stomach. And so the rumen, the reticulum, and the omasum are pre-gastric or before the stomach, all right, which makes them unique. Once we hit the stomach, okay, or the abomasum, uh, basically metabolism is somewhat similar to ours. And then, so last week we talked about the pork industry. So do pigs have a ruminant system or are they monogastric like us? They're monogastric like us. And so would be the chicken. For those listening, it is important to understand that cattle can eat these different products because of their digestive system and how it's different from ours. Yep. We talked a little bit earlier about how large cattle can be and how they're not always the most friendly animal. Let me put it that way. How is handling a concern for you guys in the industry when you're working with them? Well, and that's a good question. Okay. Um, you know, an animal behavior and their attitude is there are some genetic lines, just probably like people, right? I mean, that, that are a little bit more high strung than others. Some of them are more laid back than others and cattle do the same thing. And so, you know, one of the things that we encourage, okay, we've got several programs in the beef industry. One of them is called the Beef Quality Assurance Program. Uh, and the other one is um, a steward stewardship and stockmanship clinics that we put on. And, and it's really to help producers understand animal behavior uh, and how to handle them. And so we talk about low stress animal handling. All right. And, and animals are different. Let me say that, well, the beef cattle, but most of our domestic animals, okay, so the pigs, the chickens, the sheep, the goats, the cattle would be classified as prey animals. And the difference between a prey animal versus a predator, okay, so actually humans, we would be predators, all right? And and the difference is, is that predators have their eyes out front, all right? And so you can, you know, you have two eyes looking at whatever it is that you're looking at. In the case of the prey animals, okay, so cattle being one of those, their eyes are basically out on the side of their head, 
All right. And so that gives them a field of vision that's about 300, not quite close to 360 degrees. So they do have a blind spot immediately behind them. But because they're prey animals, okay, they're always scanning the landscape, okay, for a wolf or a grizzly bear or something that, that could do harm to them or their offspring or the group. And so they will pick up on movements that you and I probably wouldn't pick up on because it's outside of our field of vision. And let me give you an analogy, okay? Their vision is like looking through a wide-angle lens on a camera, all right? And so right in front of them, they have kind of decent perception, okay? But it's got to be out in front of them a little ways, all right? Because both eyes are now focusing on them. But if they're looking out their left eye or their right eye, they can see motion, all right, that will alert them, all right? So we need to understand how those animals see, all right? And we talk about things like point of balance, okay? When you're moving and handling livestock, and basically it's kind of the shoulder area, the front shoulder of the cattle. I've created a video, okay, for teaching purposes and for my extension program where I've worked the shoulder, okay, step in front of it, step behind it, and the animal will react to that, right? And so understanding how the animal thinks, how it sees is kind of an important part, and that can keep you out of trouble from the standpoint of the animal, kind of that fight or flight syndrome, all right, you know, and and we, we typically want to talk in low tones, okay, not do a lot of hollering and screaming and, and have a lot of noise distractions like, you know, semis going by on the highway tooting their, you know, their air horns and the four-wheel drive pickup that, you know, has the mufflers taken off and goes rumble, rumble, you know, as they go by because have one thought at a time. All right. And so what we need to do is have them focus on us. Okay. And let and then we try to convince them, okay, that it's their idea to do whatever it is that we want to do. And so it's about positioning yourself. All right. And it's amazing how well that works. And so most of our producers are using those techniques. And, you know, the, there are a couple really critical times, okay, from an animal behavior that that come into play. And that's, uh, you know, I'm, I happen to be calving cows right now. And, and I'm okay with a cow that gets a little aggressive at when she has her calf, all right, to kind of protect that from coyotes and black-headed vultures that we've got in the southern part of the state and down and you know, on down into the Gulf Coast. Um, you know, I want that cow to protect her. But at the same time, whenever I'm trying to put a tag in that calf or trying to vaccinate that calf or whatever, you know, I just need to be aware that the cow could be a little aggressive. A lot of it is is in animal handling is positioning and doing it in, in a low stress sort of way and and cattle will react to that in a positive sort of way so, um, and it, it's a learned behavior. Yeah, so it, it's important to make sure that we we handle our animals properly and safely and keep their stress levels down so that it doesn't turn around and literally bite us in the end. Yep. Now, we've talked a little bit about how cows spend the majority of their life outside. What type of environment is best for them, and does that depend on what breed they are, or can you explain a little bit about that? Okay, so I mentioned earlier that we had uh, the Boss Taurus breeds, and so those are the typical beef breeds. And then, then we've got the Boss Indicus breeds, so that would be the Brahma cattle, okay, the cattle that got that hump, okay, on their back. Uh, we see those on the Gulf Coast. Those cattle are um, more heat tolerant than Bostaris cattle. So there are typical Angus, Hereford, Simmental, Charley. And the reason for that is, is that they, they've got a thinner hide. All right. So they don't have as much. They put on their windbreaker instead of their goose down coat. OK. And so those will tolerate heat much better 
And of course, as you move into the south, you know, in the hotter regions of the country and in other parts of the world, for that matter, when you don't have a freezing and thawing like we have here in the eastern Corn Belt. And so those uh, boss indicus cattle tend to be uh, more parasite resistant, which is a, which is, fits into that part of the country. Now, you move those boss indicus cattle up into this country and, and they get really cold in the wintertime. All right, because they're too thin to hide it. So we we tend to see the Boss Indicus cattle in the southern part of the United States and the Boss Taurus cattle in the moderate to northern part of the state. Heat stress is always an issue. And, and here in this part of the country, we get, you know, 80, 90, approaching 100 degree temperatures during the day sometimes. All right. And so we've got this, what we call the temperature heat index. Okay. So it's a combination of heat and humidity. And if we have hot days and it doesn't cool off during the night, something in the 70 degrees or lower, all right, uh, these cattle will undergo heat stress. And and that can have some negative. In other words, they dissipate enough heat. And so what happens is their body temperature goes up. And that's, that's negative to reproduction. It's negative to growth. It's negative to productive function. On the, on the coal side, okay, cattle can handle... Um, 30 degree temperature is pretty easy. Well, on the coal side, what we talk about is wind chill factors. I can put cattle in a really cold environment where they start to suffer is when the wind's blowing. All right. And so from a management standpoint, we try to make sure that that producers provide some kind of a shelter. All right. So that could be a tree break. OK, a tree a shelter belt of trees, you know, on the on the windward side okay, of a holding area, pasture, lot, whatever. Um, and if we can take the, the wind chill out. All right. And now it just becomes thermometer temperature. These cattle can port really low temperatures. This whole stress thing kind of, you know, in terms of the environment. And it kind of depends a little bit on hide color. The color black will absorb heat. White or light colored cattle will reflect heat and sunlight. Black hides could be a positive in the wintertime, could be a negative in the summertime, okay, and vice versa for the whites. Uh, how much hair they have, all right? You know, are they pretty hairy or are they close to being bald, right? And then they're not bald, but, you know, short hair. Breeds, we kind of talked about how much fat cover they, these cows have got. So we call it body condition scores. And the fleshier cows or the fleshier animals can't dissipate heat as well. Okay, in the summertime, you know, we're always trying to manage both how these animals can survive and flourish in different environments. And then what about the snow as well? Okay, and that's a good question. And some people say, well, you know, after a snowstorm, you know, you drive by, by a set of cattle and they may have one or two inches of snow on their back. And that's a good thing. All right. The analogy that I'll use is it's kind of like the roof on your house, right? If you've got good insulation and in your ceilings and and that kind of thing, you know, on a snowy day, you know, you'll see snow accumulate on the rooftop. That means that there's not a lot of heat, okay, escaping through your roof. You drive by the next house and, and all the snow is melted, all right, that means that heat is, you know, coming from where your your living room, okay, and it's going up through the attic and, and up through the, the shingles, and it's melting it. So we tend to see thin cows, for example, that don't, you know, have their windbreaker on, all right? Those cows, you know, oftentimes will be standing outside and they don't have any snow on their back, it means that they're getting rid of their heat, all right? Um, excess, okay, to, and have a tougher time staying warm. Or the cow that's got snow on her back, yep, she's probably doing a pretty good job of getting through this.
Earlier in the episode, we talked a little bit about giving vaccinations to cattle. Um, can you explain what a common vaccination schedule might be for a cow? Well, we, we basically start out when the calf is shortly after it's born, all right? And, and cattle are a little different than, for example, humans, all right? The, a baby calf is born virtually naive, all right? There, it really has no maternal protection. So there's no uh, transfer of what the mother had, all right, from an antibody standpoint to the, fe- the developing fetus in utero. That happens in humans, all right? In cattle, that does not happen. So one of the first things we've got to do is make sure that this calf gets what what we call the first milk or more specifically colostrum, all right? It's high in energy, it's high in antibodies, it's high in protein. It's a different milk than what we would consume, okay, as humans, all right? So this is what the, the first milk, and it only happens at the very beginning of the lactation. So what happens is that gives that calf passive transfer of what we call passive transfer um, of antibodies, all right? It's not permanent, so it's not like a vaccination, okay, that we get for COVID or the flu or, you know, pneumonia or whatever, measles, mumps, that kind of thing. So what we have to do is we have to come back and give those calves vaccinations. And and so respiratory vaccines, uh, there are... If they're females or if they're breeding cattle, you know, there are some reproductive vaccines uh, that we are vac- vaccinations that we need to give. And the whole idea of that is, you know, to keep these cattle healthy. And if I can keep them healthy, um, then I don't have to use near as much antibiotic okay, or none at all. I mean, we've got cattle that have gone all the way through from harvest and never had a vaccination. All right. And that's because, you know, we're doing a good job, okay, of giving that calf the immunity that it needs, the immune function to, to stay healthy. And, you know, if there happens to be a disease challenge, it can handle that challenge, right? And without getting sick. And so, yeah, we do, you know, we'll vaccinate and typically, um, you know, a calf that's going into the feedlot would have had uh, two rounds of vaccinations. Okay. So the first round, okay, kind of primes the, the immune system. And then we come back with kind of what we call a booster shot. All right. Which then elevates Okay, that immune system to a different level. Or in some cases, most vaccines, and I think we can probably attest that on the human side, you know, if you're going to get one vaccine and that's all you're going to get, it's about 80% effective. All right. So 20% of the calves didn't respond well to that first vaccine. Okay. The second vaccine, okay, the booster, okay, they responded well to it. The ones that responded well the first time get an elevated, okay, level of um, immunity. Okay, for whatever the pathogens, okay, you know, we're vaccinating for. Now, I, I, I may add one other thing, and then, you know, the, the whole concept of, you know, messenger RNA and, and vaccines and that kind of stuff, we're not doing that in the cattle business. We don't have any of those. All right. So I'm not at all worried about animals that are vaccinated from a human health perspective, okay, or the end product that I think the vaccines are a positive from the human health standpoint. That's interesting to hear a little bit about the difference between vaccinations that we use as humans and vaccinations that we use for our animals, too. We hear and see in the grocery store often about antibiotic-free beef. Is this something that we should be concerned about as consumers? No, I'm not at all concerned about it. In fact, I, you know, and, and I'm not opposed to the producers or the consumers that want that product. Okay, so don't, don't misunderstand what I'm going to say here, right? You know, if if there's a demand for a product and a producer wants to 
to produce for that, I'm going to call it a niche market, um, then, then go for it, right? But as a consumer and as a beef producer myself, um, I'm, not a, I'm not worried about cattle that have had antibiotics. And the reason for that is, is that all of the pharmaceuticals are under veterinary feed directive. Okay. So all the antibiotics now are under, I have to work through a veterinarian. Okay. And I have to have a veterinary client patient relationship. Okay. With my veterinarian. So in other words, he or she needs to understand what I'm doing, what kind of environment I work in, the cattle that I'm trying to treat or whatever. And each one of these pharmaceutical products has a withdrawal time. All right. And so uh, it varies from one one product to another. Uh, but if we assume that the uh, withdrawal time and that has gone through FDA uh, or Food Drug Administration protocols, Center for Veterinary Medicine protocols. OK, the data is there that there are no there are no tissue residues, then antibiotic treated cattle or non-antibiotic treated cattle should be from a health and safety standpoint equal. What is the average amount of acreage per cow-calf pair? Well, it's very site-specific. Um, here in, uh, in the eastern Corn Belt, we're probably looking at pasture land that would produce about four tons of hay equivalent per acre. And if we kind of go through all the math, okay, that means that a cow-calf pair, so mom and her baby, all right, until weaning time, uh, are going to require somewhere around two maybe a little bit more than two acres. You get out in, in New Mexico, for example, and, you know, the uh, my cows would go out there and said, I don't I don't see anything to eat. All right. Because the plants are much further apart. The, the productivity of that soil and the climate that those those plants are growing in is completely different than what we've got here. And so it may take instead of two acres per cow, it may take 160 acres Okay, or 300 acres to run a cow calf pair, and so that's why we see some of these big ranches. Okay, is because obviously you can't grow corn and soybeans on it, and it doesn't do a real good job of producing a lot of forage. All right, and so it depends. Okay, on where you're at in the country, uh, but here we're probably looking at you know two to three acres per cow calf pair. Okay, on on an average. And I can do some things as a producer. You know, I can fertilize my pastures. I can renovate my pastures with higher uh, quality grasses and legumes, you know, to increase my productivity. But that's kind of, that's an average. to the next segment of our podcast, what are some common misconceptions that you see as a producer from us as consumers? Well, I, I, we talked a little bit about one of them, and that's, you know, that, you know, we're, we're stuffing our animals full of grain, all right? And the reality is, is that, you know, in the life cycle, it's uh, kind of, as I indicated before, it's 80% forage for the life cycle, okay, from conception you know, to harvest uh, 80% forage, 10% non-edible human foods, and about 10% grain. So we're not stuffing them full. I think another one that that uh, I hear, okay, consumers talk about is, well, you know, we're stuffing our animals full of hormones. And the reality is that that's not the case, all right? And I'll give you an example. Um, estrogen is one of the hormones that would be used in, in what we call growth implants or hormone implants. And the difference between uh, an implanted steer and a non-implanted steer is 1.2 nanograms in the non-implanted steer 
of estrogen and 1.9 nanograms in an implanted steer per three ounce portion. So that's 0.7 nanogram. All right. So if you think about, okay, so how does that relate to anything that I can think about? Well, a non-pregnant woman, okay, an adult woman uh, that's not pregnant, she produces 480,000 nanograms much different than that 0.7 difference between implanted and non-implanted. Mm-hmm. An adult male, 136,000 nanograms per day. Birth control pills, 35,000 nanograms. Ice cream, 350 nanograms per three ounce portion. All right. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. Right? And so a nanogram, you know, that's a pretty small quantity. Okay. And so what does that translate to? It translates to one blade of grass in two football fields. All right. Wow. So 0.7 nanograms. Okay. Kind of puts it in perspective a little bit. And then you tap on top of that. Okay. Consumed hormones. Okay. Are only about 10% absorbed. All right. So that basically 90% just goes straight through the GI tract. So it's really a non-issue. Do you see any other common misconceptions at all? Yeah, probably this whole issue of greenhouse gases. All right. And, you know, depending on, you know, which storyline you want to listen to, uh, you know, beef, you know, have methane. Okay. And some of the folks in Washington said, you know, it was because of cow burps. But here's here's kind of the real story on greenhouse gases. The electricity portion of our country produces about 30 percent. Okay, the greenhouse gases. Transportation is about 30 percent. And I'm rounding numbers here. Okay, but just to kind of give you an idea, electricity is 30 percent. Transportation is about 10. Industry is about 20. Commercial and resident use is 10 or 11. Uh, Agriculture is less than 10, and beef production is less than three. Okay, percent of the greenhouse gases. And so we we talk about methane, right? Methane is is a more potent greenhouse gas, considered more potent than a, than carbon dioxide. Problem is carbon dioxide has a very very long, like thousands of years, breakdown time, right? Methane will last for ten years, okay? Then it's converted into CO two, okay, or carbon dioxide, which then cycles back through photosynthesis. Plants produce oxygen. So another thing that you can kind of put it into perspective is, you know, so is the beef industry adding to the methane? Is it adding to the greenhouse gases over time? And the answer is really no. If we go back into the pre-industrial period, we had buffalo, okay, that roamed the country, all right? The numbers of buffalo, okay, and the number of cattle we've got, pretty similar, Okay. Obviously, we don't have very many buffalo anymore, but we've got more cattle. All right. So as long as we do not increase the ruminant population, we're not increasing the amount of methane compared to back in the pre-industrial period. I think that's kind of an important story to tell, right? That, no, we're, we're not the bad guys, okay, in terms of climate change and the greenhouse gases. Do we produce them? Yeah. Okay. But humans do too, right? Our trucks and our cars and electricity and all those things also produce a lot of methane and carbon dioxide. So we're not the we're not the big culprit. And if you look at United States versus virtually all of the other countries in the world, they're way lower in the amount of greenhouse gases we produce. We as a beef industry, we are better than anybody in the what maybe with the exception of Canada, okay, because their production system and ours is pretty close. But we're doing it with the least amount of greenhouse gas production of any place in the world. 
I think that's important too to like you mentioned just a few seconds ago that before there is cattle we had buffalo here in the United States that raising cattle is not a new thing mm-hmm. to it's something we've been doing for hundreds of years now. Each week, audience members can submit questions that they have about that industry for you to answer. And I put a poll on social media and on Spotify last week asking if anybody had questions about the beef industry. And we have a few questions that I would like for you to answer. First question is, I have watched several old Western movies before, and a common thing that I see in these movies is cattle branding. Is this still a practice in the industry? Why does this happen? And does this hurt the cow? Okay, yes, branding still happens, okay? Um, We see it used a significant amount in the the western part of the United States, okay, where um, maybe uh, several ranches have cattle on the same land, okay? So so brands get used for two basic functions. One of them is uh, individual animal ID, all right? So it becomes a permanent form of, of animal identification. But the second one is it also could be a ranch brand where, you know, I know that that brand is mine and this other brand is your calf, right? And so we've got branding areas in the in the West, okay? And and those branding, when, when animals move one location to another, it's not surprising for somebody to stop the truck and trailer and say, okay, I wanna see the, you know, your branding permit. Okay, and 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 so it it helps a lot in the theft arena. Okay, so that's part of it. Does it hurt animals? Um, well, an analogy I think that that we can kind of relate to as humans. Okay, does it hurt to get a tattoo? Okay, and and a lot of people do it, right? I mean, and so this is kind of their tattoo. All right, we have two different forms of uh, branding. One of them is the hot iron brand. So you know, in the old western, according to the question, it's probably a hot iron brand. Does it hurt? It does until the nerve endings are uh, destroyed, and then now I have a burn spot. Okay, that that needs to heal. So you know, does do a, does burn skin? Um, hurt. Yeah, it does some, right? The other one uh, that that probably is is less aggressive and less stressful on the animal is the freeze brand. Okay, so we're using something like liquid nitrogen. And so if anybody has ever had uh, their ears pierced, all right, they probably freeze, you know, the lobe of your ear to, you know, put a nice cube behind it or whatever. Um, or if you've ever had a wart taken off, Okay, or maybe a little bit of skin cancer. All right, they use liquid nitrogen. All right, so the analogy for us would be kind of in that in that light. And so the freeze brand um, basically doesn't burn the hide; it freezes it. Okay, the nerve endings. As soon as the nerve endings are froze, okay, the animal does not feel any pain anymore. Uh, and then what happens is the hair will grow back, and typically it's white. All right, so it works really good on on black and red cattle because now I got white hair coming in. So I've kind of damaged the the hair follicles from the standpoint of the color distinction. And and the freeze branding is is become more and more common. The last question that we have asks, I have seen on my social media videos of hoof trimming in cattle and it looks like they are going pretty deep. Is this a necessary practice in the industry and is it relieving any pain that the cow feels or is it causing more pain? Good question. Okay, so hoof trimming is kind of like um, trimming your toenails, okay, or your fingernails. So only when you get cutting it too short, 
does it hurt, right? So sometimes you'll get hoof growth that that becomes more makes it more difficult for the animal to move. Okay, so the the toes and the front of the toes might cross. All right, well that's horny tissue. All right, that I can take off doesn't hurt the animal. Okay, changes the animal's ability to walk through mud. Okay, and and because there we got two toes. Okay, on every foot, I, I need the mud to be able to go through that. I need you know it needs to be able to drain between the toes and all that kind of stuff. And if I get too much horny tissue there, okay, the ability of that that foot to clean, self clean itself becomes an issue. Now, if you're watching social media, okay, there are some cows that have other issues like a sole abscess, and and the only way to to correct that is to kind of get down in deep, down and deep in it. So, you know, anybody that's ever had a boil, okay, or an abscess, all right, you know, the doctor is probably going to go in, it's going to lance it, okay, there's a bulb inside of it, okay, and yep, I got to get to the inside, okay, I may stick something in there so that it continues to drain. Well, now I'm on a foot, all right, so we'll see is sometimes we'll have to go deep to get into that, get rid of that necrotic tissue around that sole ulcer, that um, blemish, whatever it is, it could be the white line, okay, so that's kind of where the hoof wall and the soft tissue start kind of come to keep them together. Sometimes I'll get separation and the animals are lame as a result of that. And so I've got to go in and I got to clean that out. And okay. And, and yep, it's going to look like I'm going deeper than, than necessary, but I've got to get on the, on the other side of that infection. And then what you'll typically see is that, okay, animals that I've I've had to dig into that foot a little deeper than you'd like. You know, they'll typically put a, a cushion on the other toe, all right? So that the animal is walking on one toe and leaving that, that toe that I just had to trim deep, all right? And then we'll typically pack it with, you know, some kind of a powder or a solution, okay, to kind of dry up that mess. And, you know, in a, in a week or two, that pad will come off, that's shoe will come off and, you know, the, the bandages will probably get messed up and, and wear off. And, you know, usually if I can get that to heal a little bit, okay, the animal's good to go. Sometimes I'll even get a rock, okay, it's kind of, you know, a sharp edge of a rock kind of sticking in the bottom of the sole and that creates the infection and, and, and the, the need to go ahead and trim it. And then for our final question is, what do you wish that consumers knew about where their food comes from? Well, it comes from farmers and ranchers, all right? It didn't come straight out of the grocery store. You know, I, I've seen some social media posts, well, you know, why don't we just quit raising cattle and just buy it at the, at the grocery store? Well, that's not how it works, right? And so um, the agriculture, we're, we're producing, you know, each individual that's in the production agriculture is producing food for several hundred people, right? And so the farm and ranch communities uh, across this country are kind of keeping us well-fed and, um, and we're doing it efficiently. We talk in the beef industry about sustainability, okay? And people define sustainability a lot of different ways. In the beef industry, we do it as a, as a three-legged stool. It's got to be social, all right? So we've got to be concerned about what the consumer thinks about animal well-being and land use and water use and all those things. The second leg of that stool is environmental, all right? Um, you know, so that's the greenhouse gases and all, you know, all those ramifications. But the third leg of the stool, and the only way this stool is going to stand up is if we have the economic piece, all right? If producers can't make a living, they're going to stop producing meat, okay, or 
crops or whatever. And so, you know, I think it's the expectation of everybody in the country that, you know, you'd like to be able to make enough money to be able to support your family. Um, and and that's all we're trying to do on the agriculture. We're not trying to get rich. We're just trying to survive, right? And it's easier some years than others, right? Depending on what Mother Nature throws at us and all that kind of stuff. We need to thank a farmer. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today. I had a great time and I learned a lot about the beef industry. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be here and, and visit with you. My, it was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Next week, we will cover the second part of the beef industry where we will dive into finishing beef for processing as well as grass-fed beef and grain-fed beef. Don't forget that you can submit your questions right here on Spotify or via the Google Forms link in our Instagram. Now, I will see you all next week. <laughs>